Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming so bright and early this morning. Uh, I hope you're all, I assume you're all interested in libraries, and that's why you're here. Um, I'm Sarah Thomas. I'm Bodley's librarian, and I'm the 24th Bodley's librarian. And uh, as you can hear from my accent, I'm the first American, first non-Brit. And I also happen to be the first woman. So, uh, <laughs> well, you know, we don't have to be too chauvinist here. But, but um, uh, it, does, it does make for a very interesting experience. And you'll see in my presentation that I, I bring a perspective probably that's a, a non-native perspective as a non-Oxonian and a, and a, a non-Brit. And so I'll, I'll be slipping in and out of that from, from time to time. Now, I, I wanted to, first of all, really welcome you to your reunion. Uh, one of the things Americans do, of course, is we do reunions really well. And I was at um, Cornell University for about uh, 11 years before I came here. And uh, everyone would arrive wearing red and white. The men had red and white striped blazers and white boaters with red ribbons and their class numbers on them and things like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting for me to see you know, the, the sort of Oxford interpretation <laughs> of, of reunions and... Uh, um, and um, Actually, I did actually like uh, the way when at the reunions when people would get together and they'd sing the alma mater and they would uh, sing even song. And I had an experience when I was in China um, just before I started here, which was three years ago. Uh, I started here two and a half years ago. I was in China three years ago. And I hadn't realized, it was a workshop of Chinese librarians, I hadn't realized that uh, the Chinese were so big on singing. And they were after us all the time to sing, you know, on the bus, sort of karaoke. Uh, we, we said, oh, we're, we're too tired. And, you know, finally the last day we had to sing. And we couldn't really agree on a song we could sing. So we, we ended up singing Doe a Deer. Um, and our encore was Jingle Bells. <laughs> but afterwards, I realized... The one song that I could sing reliably was the Cornell alma mater because I had done it at so many reunions and, and, and events. So, uh, you know, the, that's one of the differences. Um, so just to tell you a little bit more about me, uh, but then I'm going to ask some questions about you. Uh, I'm, um, I started my career, I went to Smith College, which was a woman's college and in Massachusetts, and ended up working at Harvard after I, after I graduated. They uh, sent me to library school, in, this was in the 70s, and it gave me time off, gave me tuition to, to, to go. And then I left to go and get a PhD in German, I had thought that probably the best job one could have in a library was to be selecting books for a great collection. And in order to do that, I would need an advanced degree. So I did that, and uh, as, I was, as I was finishing up, um, I was, uh, their automation was really just coming into the fore in libraries. And uh, there was a group coming together called the Research Libraries Group. It was based at Stanford, California. And it 
uh, had as its underpinning a system that would be shared by a consortium of academic and research libraries and moved into the directions of uh, shared cataloging, shared collection building, shared preservation, uh, so sharing resources. So it was a combination of uh, a collaborative endeavor layered on a system that was its foundation. And that's really, I, I realize that that has influenced greatly my orientation towards libraries to think of ourselves as, as um, a unit, a collaborative, where we're all helping the world of scholars and, and helping in research. Uh, from, um, from the research libraries group, I had an academic library management internship which placed me for a year at the University of Georgia. And uh, that gave me an opportunity to experience a large state university in the south of the United States. Uh, that was only a 10-month uh, experience. And then I went uh, to the National Agricultural Library uh, to be the head of technical services. My husband was teaching, and we were looking to find a place where the two of us could be together, and we sort of settled on Washington, D.C. This was in the neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Um, I had never actually been there to the National Agricultural Library. They just sort of offered me the job. And uh, when I looked it up in a guidebook, it said, home of the Poultry Hall of Fame. <laughs> I thought, well. <laughs> but I, I expected to come in and find portraits of, of famous chickens. But um, it was really poultry researchers. But it actually was a really wonderful job because I got a lot of international experience. And again, it was highly uh, collaborative. So I got networked into uh, state universities and internationally with uh, people in Egypt and people in the Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome and uh, worked in, uh, spent time in Moscow and Indonesia, things like that. So that was very interesting. And then, though, because agriculture wasn't really my passion, uh, I was <laughs> fortunate enough to go uh, to the Library of Congress as the um, director for cataloging, where there were um, 800 catalogers basically cataloging for the nation and then moved within the Library of Congress to being in charge of all of their special collections and then all of the public services of the Library of Congress. But one of the things that I really missed while I was there at the Library of Congress was contact with actual readers, with students, with academics. And so when I was recruited by Cornell University to be their university librarian, I was you know, immediately smitten and said, yes, I would love to, to move to Ithaca, New York. And uh, I did that very happily for almost 11 years when uh, I got what I thought was spam in my in email uh, from a, it was a sort of strange name. And I almost deleted it, but it turned out to be someone from a search firm. And they asked, could they send me the job description for Bradley's librarian? And I said, mm, yeah, who knew? You know, <laughs> it's Oxford. Uh, yes. And I was immediately totally, uh, uh, I don't know, I was going to say obsessed with, with the idea that I could, could come here because, and you'll see, we have wonderful challenges 
And, and I mean that in the most positive way. That's not a euphemism for dealing with problems. We have uh, enormous building projects, capital projects. We're building the digital library. And at the same time, we're integrating libraries here at Oxford. And so that it seemed to me a, a very natural progression from working with digital information in my earliest uh, days of my career, uh, collaboration that I had worked with when I was at the research libraries group, and then the, the opportunity to work at, at, I think this happens to be the very best job for a professional librarian in the world. And so I'm, I'm just uh, delighted to, to be here. But one of the things about being in a library today is that um, in newspapers, you're always reading about the demise of the library. <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, how many of you visit a library, mm, let's see, should I be too ambitious? Um, once a week. All right. Okay, very good. Um, what do people think? That was about a third, maybe, uh, saying that. How many people use the internet once a week? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, so few people don't or d didn't wish to contribute to that, um, to that uh, survey. Um, one of the things that people say constantly to us in libraries is that, um, oh, I never go to the library anymore. Uh, you know, everything is on Google. Everything, or I go to Amazon, or I, I do this. And at the same time, I, I know you were telling me you're here because you love books and print, and, uh, and uh, we certainly have a lot of them at the, at the Bodleian. <laughs> so, uh, and we're not planning on getting rid of them anytime soon. And that might be one of the things that will distinguish an Oxford from another university is that we will be uh, a library of last resort, a library that retains its print uh, for all time. And I'm going to start talking now about, um, first about artifacts in the library, about books and the importance of that. Then I'm going to have a large section in the middle about uh, digitization and Google and uh, a lot of things that you're reading in the news, maybe a little inside uh, scoop on some of that. And then at the end, I'm going to give you a quick tour of some of our capital projects that we have underway that are uh, some of the changes we have in the library. So before I, and then we're going to have a chance for questions, but it, are there any particular things that you'd like me to cover that I didn't mention in that? Yes. All right, uh, that one I've got to write down. Let's see, it, remind me if I forget, too. Uh, uh, okay, so let's, let's get started here. Um, the title of the talk was uh, Gutenberg and the Digital Re Revolution in Oxford's Libraries in the 21st Century. So I thought I would just start out with a tiny capsule history of Oxford's libraries. And this was the first university library. This is in the university church. And there was a chest there that held a few manuscripts. And it actually dates from 1320. So we have uh, quite a, a long history. 
in, in terms of that. And then um, in 1437, Duke Humphrey, who was the youngest brother of Henry V, made an extremely generous donation to the university of uh, a group of manuscripts of about 280 or slightly more than 280 manuscripts. And the university said, gosh, you know, we need to treat this largesse with respect. We'll build its own library. They were in the process of building the wonderful uh, major university building, the Divinity School, which started uh, 1427. And so they thought, oh, we'll just go up another story and, and put uh, Duke Humphrey up, up there on top of it. So um, building projects, you know, we may think we've struggled for a while. I heard someone talking about our, our book storage facility in Swindon in the back earlier when you were coming in. Um, you know, maybe that seems like nothing compared to building Duke Humphrey's library because that took about 50 years uh, and it opened in 1488. Um, in the, uh, oh, and I actually, just let me go back. This little sketch, which is somewhat hard to see, but you see here the very uh, traditional slanted bookshelves with books that would be shelved below and chained, and that's the way that library was built. So, um, you know, not, not, um, not a lot of storage there. Um, then Bodley came along, and the, the Duke Humphrey was basically gutted and, uh, in the 16th century, and, and Humphrey's manuscripts were dispersed. They were uh, used to wrap butter, used to line men's clothing, um, just they were heretical or deemed um, no longer relevant. And so of the remaining, of, of the 280, there are about 11 that are still um, able to be found, of which we have four still. Uh, so Bodley came along and renovated the space uh, into something that looked approximately like this. Um, and we reopened, reestablished the library in 1602. And you'll see that what Bodley did um, in, in renovating a building a century and a half later or so was to uh, introduce a very modern innovation that is the, the book stack where the books are shelved um, standing upright and they're uh, no longer always chained. Um, so the, the transition to the um, printed book was already underway. Gutenberg, um, at least for Westerners associated with movable type, uh, had this breakthrough 500 years ago that's led to our ability to disseminate ideas widely and inexpensively. So that's uh, the, um, the, the start of the Bible, Gutenberg's Bible, for which, uh, and you'll see our, our copy of the Bible there, uh, dates from uh, 1542. Um, we own one, and it's one of 24 copies surviving in paper and one of 17 complete copies. There are also four copies in vellum, one of which is at the British Library. 
and uh, that's a leaf um, from the British Library's copy. It's been digitized, and uh, you can consult it online at the at the British Library's website. So. When you think about it, in this day and age, what is really the value of the book? If you can get the information uh, on a website, if you can uh, uh, see uh, uh, either a facsimile or a, a reproduction of it and make it widely available, uh, we could probably take our copy and sell it to a collector for millions of pounds. And uh, you know, why, why is it that we retain this? And made me think of, uh, as a Germanist, someone I read uh, back in the 70s when I was in graduate school, Walter Benjamin, who uh, was a, a German Marxist literary theorist uh, from the 20s and 30s, and he wrote, uh, this uh, Das Kunstwerk und Zeitalter seiner technischen Reproduzierbarkeit, or the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. And he identified several attributes of the artifact that uh, made people, even in the age of mechanical reproduction, want to look at the original. And uh, so you, you think about the historical importance of a particular item. You have uh, a sense, I think, of, uh, of uh, reverence for an object that's been held by Martin Luther or held by someone. You're looking often at the provenance of, of a work. We have an atlas in the, in the Bodleian from the 15th century and when you open the atlas and look at the book plate, it comes from the library of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And what you realize is that when Columbus went begging for the venture capital to send him off on his exploration, this was the atlas that they used to consult to see whether this guy was worth uh, putting anything behind. And, um, you know, it does not fail to awe me when I'm standing there in the stacks and someone is showing me this to think about uh, how, that, how that had that uh, importance. <clears throat> the other thing, of course, is uh, an artifact is something uh, really you, you have a close communion with. It's a one-to-one -one experience often when you're looking at a, at a, uh, a work. And that gives you a different relationship than when it's uh, something that you're partaking um, as, as a group, as the whole. So it makes it, a, it's a, makes it very unique and, and precious. And... Uh, you might think that um, students today are so digital uh, between Twitter and uh, text messaging and that they, I have a son who's 27 who when I show him something in the New York Times say, I don't do dead trees. Um, 
he might go and read it on his computer. And in fact, he's very well knowledgeable about politics and international affairs. But he has this, this uh, relationship with paper where that's just not the sort of thing he does. But I had an experience here. Uh, my college association is Balliol. And uh, they invited me to speak to a group of students at, at Balliol. And I was there at a lunchtime, and the students were sitting on the floor and perched on armchairs, and I was telling them about um, modern libraries. And when I finished, there was a young woman in the back of the room, and she raised her hand, and she said, could you tell us about your rare books? And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to say about our rare books? We have a lot of them. You know, where do I start? And while I was sort of fumbling for what, what would I tell her, I said, oh, well, you can see them for yourself. And she said, oh, no, no, I asked, and they told me to use the microfilm. <laughs> so I thought, oh, you know, this is very sad. Here's, here's someone who really wants to, to know about these rare books. So her name is Jill Einhorn. Uh, she's from South Africa. And uh, I said, you send me an email and we'll arrange this. So we arranged a visit. The kind of visit we do actually for donors who, uh, or people who might be donating millions of pounds <laughs> for uh, Balliol students. And they came. Jill had them. She said, you're going to the Bodleian. You need to dress right. So the girls came in black dresses with blue satin sashes and the young men were in their navy jackets and ties and they, they were wonderful and in fact uh, you can see uh, some of our curators uh, showing them, in fact that very atlas I think, um, some of the works that we put out and we let them touch the page of a Gutenberg Bible. And uh, when, when I left with, we, we finally, it was a Friday night, I finally thought, oh, my staff have been here. It's getting to be 7.30. We still have to put all the books away. Um, and I, so I finally said, you know, we have to go. And as I was walking out with a young man, I thought, he's 80 years old. He's going to be telling his grandchildren about the time he was in the Bodleian and turned the pages of the Gutenberg Bible. So there is something very magical about the, the artifact I itself. And uh, just to continue the story, this Jill was just an incredible young woman who decided that more people ought to have the experience of working in the Bodleian. So she concocted something called the Balliol Bodleian Fellowship. And we've had, uh, I think we're now in our second one. We pay them a very modest um, stipend or award of 500 pounds a term. And they can come and work on papers or projects in the Bodleian and get a chance to, uh, to really see the back scenes of, of, a, of a major library. Well, scholarly careers here and elsewhere are made by comparing textual variants and people see when you're, when you're looking at uh, Dickens and how things have been published in fascicles, uh, then you can understand the rhythm of the text better when you see how the physical package is, is put together. And we have something called the Center for the Study of the Book, which we are... Um, uh, promoting very actively now. It has a series. If any of you, 
is uh, I, I urge you to come and uh, check it online and see about the classes we have, uh, the, the seminars that we have. It's, it's a very lively group of people, and uh, definitely bibliophiles are alive and well in Oxford. Um, so the, the book does remain enshrined as a cultural object and also as a vital scholarly resource. And uh, I think also as, a, as a, a sheer tactile pleasure and aesthetic pleasure, and if you go and look at the uh, binding exhibition that is up now in the Bodleian, the rare and fine bindings, you'll appreciate that side of it. And I just quickly want to show you a few things from our collections. Um, this is um, James Needham's um, uh, pay book. It's a Tudor account book uh, kept uh, from the court of uh, Henry VIII. And we owned about uh, 20 of these. And this was one missing in the sequence that came up for auction. And we were able to go to a number of our friends in the, uh, of the library and ask them to contribute so that we could acquire this book. And it filled in a missing gap in our collection. So it was just a perfect uh, a combination. Plus, it has actually very useful information. It has lists of all the workers. Let's say they're um, renovating something for Anne Boleyn. And, and so it has a list of all the workers and how much they're paid and what days they worked and the material that was ordered. So it's a fascinating study of, of life in, in the times. And then uh, we have, uh, you probably won't be able to see too much about this. Let's see. Um, yes, it was a, f no, a dreary night of November. Anybody, can anybody tell me what this is? It's Mary, Mary, Mary Shelley Frankenstein, that's right. Uh, that we have the, the manuscript of, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And uh, we have some things that are not textual. We also have uh, portraits and miniatures uh, that are, are in the library, so of Shelley. We have a, a lot of manuscripts, so sometimes I'm talking about published books and sometimes I'm talking about manuscripts. This is Tolkien. Uh, a new acquisition in the recent years, uh, I think last year. This is Mendelssohn, Schilfried, and uh, illustrated by Mendelssohn. Uh, He's, we have uh, several sketchbooks owned by Mendelssohn. We have really one of the best collections in the world of Mendelssohn material. And uh, he was very accomplished also as, as an artist. And uh, our, our music collection is uh, probably about the 10th, uh, in the top 10 in, in the world. So it's quite an extraordinary collection. And then more recently, um, we were able to acquire the works of Alan Bennett. And indeed, we were very fortunate that Alan Bennett chose to donate the collection to the Bodleian Library because of the education he received here at Oxford. He was at Exeter. And he had received this education which had transformed his life 
and he wanted to give back to the university because of the education he had received here. And as a result, we have one of, uh, uh, certainly a national treasure and work that will be uh, continually studied by scholars over the uh, coming generations. But there is um, a, a revolution occurring, and this is the Kindle. Uh, this is the latest version of the Kindle. Has anyone, does anyone here use an e-book? Yes? Uh, so maybe three or four or five of you. Do you have a Kindle or you have one of the other uh, ones? The Sony e-reader. The Sony e-reader, yeah. I, I don't have one. Um, and I've, you know, I've been thinking, well, maybe this is the year. And one of the reasons one thinks about that is then when you go to Amazon and you're looking for a book, and um, I don't know about you, but I, I have uh, sometimes that habit that students have, which is I start looking for something at 11 o'clock at night, and uh, <laughs> the libraries are closed, and I really want to check that information now. And uh, I was intrigued. I was looking. Someone asked me about the author, Christopher Catherwood, and so when I was looking this up, he, uh, if you say, Start reading Winston Churchill on your Kindle in under a minute. Don't have a Kindle? Get yours here. <laughs> and um, I mean, it, it, it certainly seems as though there are um, uh, geometric increases in the amount of content that is available, and, once the, and that the readers provide uh, some experience that we don't have in, the, in the, the codex in the sense that they can be wired and linked to other sources so that you can be checking references and other things. So I don't really think we're there yet in this, uh, but I do think it probably in the next um, three to four years we will see uh, a dramatic upsurge of the use of electronic books. And I think we're all familiar with the advantages, being able to search across multiple sources, uh, being able to search on images, having audio, being able to manipulate and annotate texts, and uh, making whole libraries portable. And in fact, people who travel a lot, I don't know if that's what you do, but you know, people who are going to China or the Middle East can take six books, ten books, a hundred books with them, and so and have something that's very slim uh, that they don't have to, uh, to worry about um, losing their place in that and having that. So that is something really that I'm watching personally to see uh, at what point it really begins to affect how we deliver services. There are universities um, in the states that look at um, uh, putting uh, readings on the Kindle and having students get access, or, or a reader, and having students have that content at least as a common uh, platform of information. Uh, the, um, yes, so the, the revolution, I think that's really transforming libraries, is digitization and now the rate of digitization. Um, if you go and look at any library's strategic plan, it will have a, a plank about uh, digitization in it. But 
for um, 20 years or more, as libraries have been digitizing, we've really barely made a dent in the content. And it wasn't until Google, really, came to a number of large research libraries and put forward a plan to digitize, in some cases, whole libraries that we've moved from what might be called a boutique approach into uh, an industrial strength digitization program. Now, we have been engaged here at Oxford in digitization, both as a Google partner, but also outside of the Google framework. And Early English Books Online is an example of something that is really revolutionizing scholarship in the humanities. Uh, we're, it's looking at um, 100,000 titles ranging from 1473 up through 1700. And uh, scholars such as Clinton Skinner at, at uh, Cambridge recently wrote in the acknowledgement of his new book on uh, Hobbes, I particularly single out Ebo, describing it as a database to which every student of early modern history owes an immense and burgeoning debt. And uh, so it's, it's really uh, becoming very, very, I hear sometimes even the most hesitant uh, um, English faculty members talk about how useful it is for them to be able to search this sort of, sort of content. And uh, just to say, and I, I, I find myself in the question about access, um, we have a deal in terms of Ebo. It's marketed um, by a company, I think it's actually ProQuest now is marketing it. And it's sold around the world. It's sold as subscriptions to libraries. It's freely available to UK institutions. And so what I don't know is whether that's UK institutions um, that you have to go in through a particular library or whether you can find it just as, a, as an individual. I don't actually know the detail on that, but I'd be happy to find out if anyone wanted that. But it is really uh, Google who has set down a marker in their digitization. And uh, Google is, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I've been uh, a very strong proponent of digitization with Google. Uh, we had a contract with them at my previous institution. I was happy to come here to Oxford and have one. But in my own family, uh, my husband, who is uh, an intellectual property expert for libraries and archives, uh, he represents the other side of the dangers of Google, and, and so we have quite lively discussions sometimes. So just to, to be clear that it's not all um, uh, rosy. One of the things that I've been paying attention to about Google for a long time is, well, not they haven't been around that long, but <laughs> you know, as long as they've been around, libraries and, and Google sh share the same mission you know, from their mission down below is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. And I'm thinking, oh, well, that's what kind of what libraries do. I mean, uh, uh, are, are, they, are they a competitor or are they a partner? And, and then, um, you know, here's the same thing taken from a Google Libraries newspaper, uh, newsletter. 
that we have the same mission and we need to work together. Now, in some of their earlier press releases about, they're sort of taken off their website now, but I have copies of them from the past. Um, uh, they talk a lot about monetizing this content. And so you can see that their, their strategy is not entirely altruistic. On the other hand, what they have done is breathtaking and I think really important. So the partners, the initial partners, Stanford, Michigan, Harvard, the New York Public Library, and Oxford, um, they targeted at Stanford and, and uh, Michigan, they were basically going through the shelves, um, hoovering up everything. So whole libraries digitized. They weren't worrying at the time they were digitizing about copyright. They were basically thinking one of the things that has defeated digitization projects in the past has been selection. You know, because if you have to think about every book, should I, should I not, that increases the cost. And they clearly wanted to do this in the most economical fashion. So at, at those two libraries, they were doing uh, full-scale digitization of everything. And, uh, but in more cautious libraries, uh, libraries that didn't wish to be sued, uh, we, we digitized only public domain work. So that was um, a, a real difference. The, the estimate is now that Google has digitized as many as 10 million books. So if you think that we say we have 9 million books uh, in the library, Google has digitized more than, than we have. And of course, uh, there isn't 100% overlap um, in, in that, even if they've done 10 million. There, the criticisms that have occurred about Google have been, um, first, poor quality of the scanning, uh, so sometimes there are pages missing, sometimes there are thumbs you can see. Um, you know, there's, there's some skewing. It's definitely not perfect, but when you've done 10 million of, of something, um, it's, there's a lot of good content there. Um, another uh, uh, issue was that Google was, um, very early on, was that Google was very English-centric. They were choosing these U.S. libraries, and then they had the Bodleian. And there was a big um, flap when the head of the Bibliothèque Nationale uh, wrote a, a, a book about uh, how Google was you know, not really going to represent the world's knowledge equitably, and that would distort people's results. And um, there, was, there was a strong European movement to digitize. But just recently, that director um, is no longer there, and the, they've now signed on as a Google partner. So um, they're, they're, that I think people are, and then Google has been very careful to expand its content um, so that that bias, that initial bias, the US bias, the English language bias, um, is, being, is being addressed. Now, the content, uh, oh no, I've got to talk about the settlement here, I think. This is just a second. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. But it has signed a settlement with the uh, 
uh, it, it signed an agreement with the Authors Guild and the Association of American Publishers who have been opposed to Google because they felt they weren't getting um, uh, a fair remuneration for, their, uh, for the books that Google had digitized that uh, represented their authors. And there's been an agreement, but now it hasn't been approved and it's been taken out of the court that it was going to be heard in. And uh, th I think they'll go back to the drawing board on, on, a, on a settlement there. But thinking about the content, I mentioned that we've done public domain work and that other libraries have done uh, their full collections. So what percentage is that? In the, the categories that Google has scanned, there's public domain, there's in copyright and in print, and then there's in copyright but not in print. So of the public domain work, it's probably about 20% is public domain. So actually a very small amount of material is in public domain. Then commercially available in print, 10%. Very small as well. So there's this vast pool of material, 70% is still under copyright, but not available for people to go and buy in a bookstore. And that's sort of the nub of the, uh, some of the differences that people have is whether those authors could be discovered and come up with their rights and receive some revenue as part of Google's work or whether that's valuable research material that ought to be unlocked and made freely available to people and that the, the publishers are preventing uh, scholars from, from doing their work. And you can see that people could be passionate on both sides. Now, the, another interesting aspect, now that we're living in a multinational, uh, very international, global, people talk about the global world, another aspect of this is the copyright laws differ from country to country. And in the United States, uh, we could digitize, things were in the public domain up through uh, 1923, and then it depended on whether you had uh, renewed your copyright or not. And that was labor intensive to check, but if you hadn't renewed your copyright, then you could go, libraries could digitize that with impunity. But here in the UK, one of the things that I've been learning about is that it's the life of the author plus 70 years. So if you think about that, um, Thomas Hardy died in uh, 1928. And um, I guess you get to go through the whole calendar year. So it's 1999, then becomes the year that Hardy's works pass into the public domain, or Virginia Woolf's works in uh, 2012. But imagine then we're scanning works from the Bodleian. Okay, Thomas Hardy, Virginia Woolf, famous people. You can find out when they died. But an obscure author from the early, from the late 19th century, you don't know when they died. And so we were actually stopping 
our digitization at about 1875 because we felt that uh, we might be skirting over into copyright material. And I think there were some categories of things where maybe we went up a little bit later. But um, those haven't been, interestingly enough, released to the public because Google is very shy about uh, lawsuits. And um, so I have the experience when I go home to Ithaca, New York at Christmas time, let's say, and I'm searching online, I find works that um, are here in the Bodleian, but that I can't find when I'm searching here in the UK because they're presented differently for different um, audiences. And I think in the, in the settlement that's now being heard in the US, or considered in the US where they would sell a subscription to these 10 million volumes in the library. It could be as if people in the US were allowed to have mobile phones and, and we in the UK were stuck with landlines because uh, you know, people in the universities in the US will have access to a very rich corpus of material in a, in a very facile way to search through it that we won't have here. So I think it will be very important for us to try to synchronize the agreements uh, across countries. Um, one other thing to say, um, so someone asked about how we do digitize. And um, the Google approach is proprietary, so I'm not really allowed, except I told you you could see thumbprints on the, uh, uh, on the paper. So you know that there, there is a, a camera and there's a person involved in it. And uh, essentially, what you're doing is uh, taking a, a, a book and you're putting it under a camera and you're turning the pages. Uh, I did work with another company the, and Microsoft uh, supported this, where they had a scanner and a, well, I always call it like a vacuum sucking machine. It, it, it created, it was, it, it, there was a, a, a draft of air that was sensitized to the, um, the weight of the paper so that it wouldn't, so that it would take different uh, weights of paper and it would turn the pages. So that one didn't have people doing it. And then you have to have the, the important thing is sometimes people say, well, you can always scan. It's really, I mean, how, how hard is that? You put it down and you take the image and you could put it on a photocopier and scan and that doesn't take any time. Why does it cost so much to digitize a book? It's because of the metadata, the description about material that you have to have that takes a long time. And so you have to link up that scan with the information that's going to allow people when they're searching to be able to find it. And then do the OCR as well, the optical character recognition so that you can do word by word searching. Okay. Um, so one of the things, when people say to me, uh, Google, um, Google will drive all the libraries out of business. If you can get everything online, why would you still need the Bodleian? And not too many people say that, but th there are people who do. And uh, basically, what you have to look at is when Google is doing an industrial strength digitization project, they basically want things 
that are similar in size. So they don't want those little tiny rare books that people used to put in their breast pockets. They don't want the big atlases. They don't want things that have fold-outs in them. They're not as good on, um, well, we have material that's fragile, that can't be scanned. And all of our archival material, the, the Tolkien documents, are very unique and not uh, you know, it, it's a much more labor-intensive activity to digitize um, archives. And so a place like the Bodleian with 10,000 medieval manuscripts with huge archival collections is not going to be replicated anytime soon because the cost is just astronomical to be able to do that. All right, let's see. Um, I think I'm just about finishing on on Google. I mean, of course, the real concern with people is, uh, I mentioned uh, the disparity in copyright laws, but is that Google will be a monopoly and that we will be, uh, it's fine, there's peace and light right now, we're all sharing our, our collections, but suppose things change one day and the subscriptions become astronomical, or um, there's censorship. There was an experience with uh, the Kindle where people who had bought George Orwell's um, Animal Farm, wasn't it? Or in 1984, I can't remember what it was. It was one of those, one of Orwell's works, bought it, and they woke up in the morning and it had been taken away from them because there was some dispute about um, uh, the ownership of that work. Well, meanwhile, you think, well, I bought it. It was on my machine. It was there on my nightstand. How could they come in in the middle of the night and suck away my content? Uh, you know, so, there, you know, it, there, it, it's, a, it's a different territory. You, have to, you can't even begin to think about all, all the issues, so, uh, this kind of censorship that people have. Um, and then another issue when all of this material is being used is um, uh, privacy. One of the credos uh, for librarians is that when you come into the library to use a book, we will protect the privacy, your privacy, of what you're looking at. And now, when you get into internet providers, um, they've collected data. I mean, in, in libraries, we usually um, re delete our records or anonymize them after a certain point. And, uh, but the IT providers can continue to have that. So it's a question of where you stand on, on, on privacy. Anyway, these are all differences I expect we'll have ironed out. And um, we're becoming more, more web-based. Those people who hate digital, I'm, I'm moving very soon into the physical library. So. Keep up, keep up the courage here. But um, just to say, uh, you know, this is an example, some of the Google's things, it's not complete. These are all the sorts of things they don't have. But we are becoming what they call Web 2.0. We have blogs, we have a Facebook entry. Um, this is a blog from the Center for the Study of the Book. And actually they have some very interesting um, items in there. Uh, uh, there was one where one of our staff went around and took pictures of book rests in different libraries and book cradles and things. So they have that. And then um, 
um, we have bodcasts. And, uh, un but unfortunately, when I was uh, searching for bodcasts to try to find an image of one of the library's bodcasts, I found that another organization had used that word. And so, you know, I was <laughs> thinking, well, Playboy, how can they be using podcasts? But then I went back again to capture another image. And, oh, wait. Um, and I found they had taken it off. So probably they had found out that we were using it. And uh, they do say, we're sorry, we couldn't find the page you requested. I'm thinking, do I need a link from Playboy's page over to the Bodleian? And what kind of traffic would that drive us? I, by the way, I've, I've um, deleted some of that picture to, for, <laughs> to do that. OK. Um, so just to say, we are becoming um, very modern, very, very au courant, but we want to marry these innovations with our traditional strengths. And our traditional strengths are really our wonderful collections, our people who are knowledgeable, and uh, then um, we have a collection of historic buildings that are inspirational, I think, beyond words, when you think of the Radcliffe camera, when you think of the Bodleian, when you think of Duke Humphrey. Now, this is one. Um, how many people uh, know and love this building? <laughs> okay. Were you, did you read PPE? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the new Bodleians are built in the, built in the 1930s and um, actually built by uh, a distinguished architect, Giles Gilbert Scott who uh, did some of these buildings. And um, so he was, he was distinguished. Um, one, one just, and the more I look at this building, and I'm gonna show you some slides, it's actually um, a, a quality building. But as you can see, it's been over the years um, not, not uh, treated with the greatest respect. I mean, it's, it's grimy from pollution. There's an apron in front of it to keep skateboarders from um, using a ledge that was there. The front door, which was the ceremonial door that was um, opened the, with the silver key that broke in the lock, um, is never used. And if you do open it today, there's an electrical cabinet behind it. Uh, and it's our architect, I thought, was very kind when he called it a shy building. Uh, it, it um, you know, the entrance is on the King's Arms side. Uh, it really sort of says keep out. And it was built as a book warehouse in the, in the 30s. We didn't start using it until the 1940s. And um, now, the way in which libraries are functioning is really changing. We, there is increased demand for programs about materials in libraries. People want to teach using materials from special collections. The public wants to know what's behind those walls. And uh, it's part of the national treasure for, for the country. So we have a series of things that we're planning. Uh, first of all, we're upgrading the uh, storage facility. The library was um, built with a forest of steel columns. But actually, what that means is this very library where we have four engrossments of Magna Carta, our copy of the Gutenberg Bible, Kafka's baby pictures, uh, all sorts of, of wonderful material. 
um, has basically no fire protection. Um, you know, there's, there are no sprinklers there. The way the columns are built, they, if a fire started on the ground floor, they just, everything would just implode. Uh, three and a half million volumes of material there. So we're going to be building um, space that will be environmentally sound for archival uh, collections. Um, you can see those, uh, the, the general sort of clutter. We have a conveyor that takes books from the um, New Bodleian under Broad Street into the Old Bodleian, and then people carry things up to Duke Humphrey. It's not the most efficient way uh, to do it, and in fact, when the conveyor was out of service a few years ago, they found it was actually faster to deliver it by van from one library to the other. So it's, it's quaint, it's cute, but it's not uh, a modern, modern library. Um, so this is the, the elevation for the library. Below ground, three levels of storage, roughly a million volumes, um, compartmentalized, uh, protected against fire, protected against flood, so, uh, because we're sort of below the water table there. Then at the ground level, to be a public space, an atrium, and it's named for uh, Toby Blackwell of Blackwell's Bookstores, who uh, made a very generous donation for us. And then above uh, the ground level will be the Center for the Study of the Book, conservation laboratories, uh, seminar rooms, reading rooms. And I'll give you a quick tour of that. So the innovation that the architect, now our current architect is Wilkinson Ayer, um, and um, the innovation that they brought to it was to take that shy building and open it up uh, to the streets. So the plan would be to take the, um, the, the columns there that you would, you would basically, the pilasters, would open that up, create a colonnade, and then pierce the the wall from Broad Street so that people could enter into the, into the atrium, into the hall. And uh, so we're, we're looking at the ability to do that. We need to work, of course, closely with English Heritage. It's a grade two listed building. Um, we've been having discussions with them all along. And the general enthusiasm for opening up the Bodleian treasures is, is pretty significant. Some of the examples of things that we want to retain, uh, Giles Gilbert Scott not only designed the architecture of the building, but all and, and the, these fittings, the staircase, the ornamentation, these characteristic windows, uh, very long and narrow multi-paned windows, but also furnishings uh, for inside tables that we'll have. And um, in, this is uh, New York, uh, the uh, Pierpont Morgan Library, where they've created an atrium there for public gatherings that, that uh, takes people in. And that's sort of a concept of what we might be doing in the atrium, although adapted for a university. Here you see the artist's rendition of that with ghost figures, with a, a cafe, uh, the iconography of the books, and we'll, we're trying to have a lot more open access books that people can go and consult directly themselves. And um, instead of the very charming opportunity to present in Convocation House, but where it's impossible to really use technology effect effectively, 
for things where that would be beneficial, we would have an auditorium that would um, seat about 120. We would have not one but two exhibition galleries, and we'd be able to increase the size of our exhibition space by uh, uh, about three times. So that would mean that we could have rotating displays of our treasures and then rotating thematic displays uh, based on um, the topical interest. Then PPE reading room, familiar to people? Um, actually a very beautiful room. And so what we want to do is restore that and have that be um, an important reading room again. And uh, I mean, my particular favorite are these chandeliers that were custom designed for the, for the building. We will create spaces that are, are more flexible and modern, so chairs that move, uh, chairs that have softer seats, the ability to walk up and get a book, um, the ability for people to sit together and have conversation. Those are all the sorts of things that one expects to have in today's library. But then also uh, silent reading rooms. And one of the things about this particular reading room is um, where we will serve special collections is uh, clear sight lines because we have to worry, unfortunately, about security. And one of the things about Duke Humphrey, as magnificent as it is, is those alcoves that people love to get into are not really very secure to be serving important material. So we'll have that. Now, uh, this is a transition. That building that we were looking at, the New Bodleian, was built to be a book warehouse. And this was the alternative. Uh, they were going to build uh, a, uh, in the 20s, they were talking about going out to Wolvercote and building a large storage facility. Cambridge, at the same time, decided to move to the edge and build its university library. But Oxford said, no, we want to keep the Bodleian in the center. We're not going to give that up. So we built the new Bodleian. But 70 years later, 80 years later, we have built a very large storage facility in Swindon. And um, things are stored by size. They're packed in very densely. We'll have a capacity for 8.5 million volumes. And this is actually, we just broke ground on this last week. And it's a prerequisite for. Um, um, renovating the New Bodleian because we've got to get three and a half million volumes out of the New Bodleian in order to do that. Um, another image. This is what it will look like inside. And um, in order to compensate for the fact that our books, many of our books will be in Swindon, uh, which is 28 miles away, we expect to have two deliveries um, a day. But we will move to what Harvard is now doing, other libraries have, are doing, scan on, scan on uh, demand. So that if you have something, a book chapter, an article, and you want it, and you're happy to have it electronically, we will scan it for you. If you're not happy to have it, you want to actually look at the paper, we will deliver the paper. Um, now, <laughs> 50 years ago, this is how people were moving books. We're going to be moving 6 million volumes and uh, not with horse and cart. <laughs> so it's going to be a, a major undertaking at the, at the Bodleian. Uh, so let's see, the person who asked me about which libraries were going to go away, in the uh, renovation of the new Bodleian, 
when the new Special Collections Library opens, we will have um, Rhodes House Library will be incorporated into um, the new Bodleian, that Special Collections and Archival Material will be handled there. Um, we're already in the science libraries. The Radcliffe Science Library has absorbed Hook, um, geography, and is this year doing plant sciences and zoology. And uh, the social science library is doing refugee studies and um, anthropology is, is going in there. And then the humanities library is supposed to ultimately consolidate about 10 faculty libraries. And the first five are English history, philosophy, and theology from humanities. And then because there'll be a mass building on the ROQ, uh, the uh, mathematics will go in there as well. So the plan is that we'll have uh, a mass library that will be embedded in the humanities faculty building in the lower two levels, but with an entrance at, at ground level. Uh, a, something with, which is called a lantern, which is a, a glass uh, beacon on, on the top that will be spaces for reading. And as you see, the observatory is the important landmark there. People will uh, be able to see that. That will bring in natural light. Uh, another illustration and still another. Now, the furnishings totally um, don't, don't pay any attention to that. That's just what the architect threw in. For that, but the idea that there'll be this uh, double, multiple height reading room with the columns and the uh, glass beacon is is uh, an architectural continuation that we'll have, and uh, that would basically conclude what I have to say in terms of images. I think that we have. You can see we have a lot going on. We have a very vibrant library. We have, we're taking both the physical library very seriously. These are um, 150 million pounds worth of capital projects that we have. And uh, there is a, 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 something here about how you could donate if you <laughs> wanted, or if you merely wanted to be a friend of the Bodley, and uh, we have those at, at, at your place. Um, I didn't address the question of, of access. Um, if you have a, a uh, if you're an alumna or an alumnus of Oxford, you can bring, uh, you can come into admissions and you can get a reader's card. Uh, they'll be able to verify that, and you'll be able to have a reader's card and go in and use the libraries physically. Now, often people who ask access questions want to know about access to electronic material. Well, we are, and this relates to the legal deposit question, um, because we're a legal deposit library, um, uh, we are, the Higher Education Funding Council of England provides us with funding to make accessible to UK researchers um, our collections. And uh, so as an alumnus, you can come in and use them. As an independent researcher in the UK, you can. Um, if you come from, I don't know, well, if you come from the US, uh, you would need to pay 
I think it's 12 pounds for six months access. So I mean, it's, it's incredibly inexpensive to come and use these wonderful resources we have. Electronic resources, unfortunately, the licenses on them do not permit remote access uh, by people who are not enrolled members of the Oxford community. And so alumni are not included in those licenses, except very rarely. So that, that is a big difference. And then the legal deposit question. Um, we, we, we embarked on legal deposit in uh, 1610. That was one of Bodley's uh, great achievements, was making this agreement with the stationer's company to receive printed publications that were uh, printed or distributed in, in England. And in 1710, it became um, uh, the Legal Deposit Act. It's been a tremendous benefit. We sometimes calculate that the benefit to us in terms of publications which we receive for free could be as much as 9 million pounds annually. Could be. Now, those also include things on uh, how to plan your wedding, um, you know, trout fishing magazines, uh, th those sorts of things that... Uh, that's why we're building that warehouse in Swindon, right? So we're spending 26 million pounds <laughs> to store things that sometimes seem uh, non-scholarly, non-academic. But you know, 100 years from now, people are going to be interested in those wedding planners. And uh, so that we, it continues to be an asset. By, 20, hmm, by 2020, only 10% of material in England it will be estimated to be published without a digital um, version. So only 10% will be analog print. We're not going to get access to the electronic stuff in the same way. In other words, the electronic material will be, you can come into the library and consult it on legal deposit, but you won't be able to access it from home. So we think our users won't want that. They'll want us to buy subscription access. So that will become, I think that's the point when, when there's this transition to electronic where we'll have to reevaluate legal deposit and its value for Oxford. But we think it is what's made our institution great. Not only is about half of our collection accumulated through legal deposit, but uh, the fact that we have these comprehensive collections means it's a magnet for other collections and donations that come to us. Um, I'm not sure if I, did I get everybody's questions, but I'm ready to take questions now. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. You've been very attentive. Thank you. Thank you.